0: Hi, good morning everyone. Uh, my name's Ray and I'm here to give us uh, the Bible reading this morning. Uh, the Bible reading this morning comes from Job chapter 8. So yeah, I just want to uh, yeah, extend again my warm welcome to anybody here that might be their first time here at CPE. We are partway through the book of Job. Uh, so, so far in the story, we are introduced to, to Job. He's a blameless and righteous man. And so far in the story, seemingly for no reason, uh, in a blink of an eye, uh, Job uh, suffers the loss of all his possessions, livelihood, children, and health. And uh, while the pain and grief is still raw, some of his friends visit him to offer their comfort and attempt to make sense of the situation. So we're going to read from uh, Job chapter 8, and we're going to read uh, what? Uh, Bildad, Bill uh, the Shuhite, one of Job's friends. Uh, Says in in response to Job's uh, questioning of of, of God. So we're going to read from Job chapter 8, verse 1. Then Bildad, the Shuite, replied, How long will he say such things? Your words are blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. But if you will seek God earnestly and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your prosperous state. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. Ask the former generations and find out what their ancestors learned. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing, and our days on earth are but a shadow, Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? Can papyrus grow tall where there is no marsh? Can reeds thrive without water? While still growing and uncut, they wither more quickly than grass. Such is the destiny of all who forget God. So perishes the hope of the godless. What they trust in is fragile. What they rely on is a spider's web. They cling, they they lean on the web, but it gives way. They cling to it, but it does not hold. They are like a well-watered plant in sunshine, spreading its roots, spreading its shoots over the garden. It entwines its roots around piles of rocks and looks for a place among stones. But when it is torn from its spot, the place disowns it and says, I never saw you. Surely its life withers away, and and from the soil other plants grow." Surely God does not reject one who is blameless or strengthen the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouts of joy. Your enemies will be clothed in shame and the tents of the wicked will be no more.
1: Alright, well good, good morning church. It's good to be back here and to get stuck back into Job again as well. Uh, now if you have one of these booklets on you, do grab them out. Um, again, really helpful way to kind of keep track of uh, your notes during this series and to uh, follow along with that. Uh, some more spares down the back, pens, Bibles, whatever you need uh, to follow along, do go and take advantage of that. Alright, well hey look, let's start with another question, i got another great question during the week, uh, so let's flash that up, let me grab my little clicker out, oh, that's not it. Alright, it looks like God has brought Satan's attention to Job first. Now, how could I humbly reconcile this with the observation that God's all wise and loving character... All right. Now, hey, great questions. Hey, thanks for sending those questions in. Uh, Jump onto our website under the the sermons and resources section and you can find the question and link there. Now, uh, how do we respond to this question? Well, uh, I think actually the first thing I would say is that a God of love is not necessarily a God who's always just on about my comfort. Now, to illustrate this, now, uh, in my own household, I don't always give my children what they want. Okay? There's times where I actually will say no to them about things or will get them to do something that's actually uncomfortable for them. Maybe it's getting to clean up for after themselves. Maybe it's to go and do some homework or maybe it's learning for them just to put off instant gratification. Now that isn't because I don't love them, but actually because I do. Now, they won't see it that way, they don't have the life experience that I do, uh, they uh, don't have the maturity to understand that there are some things that might be hard or awkward that you just need to do. Now That doesn't mean that I'm a grumpy, grumpy dad all the time. In fact, I try to be overwhelmingly generous to them at other moments, but the point is that in God's own love and his wisdom, sometimes, maybe, he actually makes life harder for us, not easier. He might take away something that I value for my good. Or maybe he actually will uh, do something for the sake of the gospel. In fact, those who have undergone intense suffering often are able to give the best testimonies of God's loving kindness. Now, why is that? Well, I think we saw a little picture of this uh, even in Job, but Job himself has no idea about this conversation that's gone on between God and Satan. Uh, Job has no idea. In fact, while Job's going through and as he's suffering, as he's trying to understand his experience... Guess what? Job has no experience, no, no sense in which his experience or suffering might become the paradigm. It might become a comfort for millions of people for the next several thousand years. Now just think about that for a moment, that Job's own suffering would give comfort to people, millions of people, uh, on and beyond his life. Things that Job could never have understood. Now, that's all stuff that kind of goes beyond our thinking. But just to sum up, just because God puts us through suffering, I don't think that contradicts His love and His kindness for us. Now, I think that actually leads us rather well into today's sermon. Uh, And maybe you had a good discussion there about what you think, whether you think people get what they deserve in life. Now, I was reading this uh, forum. Uh, uh, they called it Instant Karma. It's, just, it's stories about people who got what they deserved very quickly. And uh, uh, it was quite an interesting thing. It was often filled with like dash cam video. You know, the bad driver who's kind of swerving in and out of traffic. He's getting in your way. And you have that experience. So You're like, man, I wish a cop car would just turn out right at that moment. And, uh, and we, I reckon we kind of rather enjoy people getting what they deserve, don't we? We enjoy it when uh, people who do bad things get what they deserve and we kind of gladly cheer on those kinds of videos. But uh, we kind of call it karma, don't we? Karma, that's obviously, it's taking idea from, from Buddhism, Hinduism, and some of those Eastern religions about getting what you deserve, and we kind of love the idea of a karma universe because, well, everyone gets what they deserve. If you're kind and good to people, you'll receive things back in good. Now, in Buddhism, it's actually about, really, about rebirth, you know, you live a bad life and you come back as a cockroach or that kind of thing, Now, you get that kind of idea, Right. And there's something comforting about it because it means people will always get what they deserve. No one will get away without evil and good will be rewarded. Kind of seems to be a good system for promoting good behaviour, don't you think? But do we always get what do we deserve? When things are going well for us, we might cheer on this idea of karma, but what about when life's not going so well? Would you also say that You deserve it. See, I think suffering presents something of a problem for this idea of karma, both, I think, Western and Eastern versions of it, because, well, if suffering is always connected to our own action and desires, the consequence of something we've done, then we are indeed always responsible for our suffering. Now, that brings us to Job's friends. Now, Job's friends, as we remember from last week, we were briefly introduced to them. Uh, They were the ones who came and sat silently with Job for seven days, uh, which is actually a very kind and sympathetic act. But after Job uh, speaks, and we saw his lament last week, his friends now start to engage in a conversation with him. Uh, And for the next 24 chapters of the book, we're going to see these conversations between Job and his friends as we kind of go around in these cycles. And, And it ends up really being more of an argument. Now... As we look at Job, we're not really doing justice to it today by just looking at a few snippets from those 24 chapters. Uh, This is definitely the part of the book that you want to go back and take your time with and to read and to really get a feel for the kind of back and forth between uh, the friends. Uh, It's definitely something you want to take more time with. You will look at some more chapters in life groups as well. But the pattern of the book kind of goes through three cycles. Three cycles of three friends getting to say their little bit and Job getting to respond each time. Now, you kind of go, well, do we really need 20 or 30 chapters worth of conversation about suffering? Well, one of the things you really feel when you're reading the book of Job is that you almost feel like you're going on the journey of someone suffering. Right, it's not like you—you know—something happens, uh, you cry for it, and you resolve it, and it's all good again. Now, for those of you who've been through real suffering, depression, mental health stuff, you know that it doesn't just stop after a few days. People can still be asking questions months, years after the moment of their suffering, and so this is part of the point of the book that actually it takes us on this journey of confusion of. Questions of doubts. See, there isn't just one thing that you can make to, to make life feel better for a sufferer. When suffering like this, you go through endless cycles of soul-searching and grieving, arguing, wondering why, asking questions. And so this whole experience of the, Job of, uh, the book of Job kind of takes you along that journey. Well, come with me. If you've got your Bible open, come with me back to Job chapter 4, okay? Job chapter 4. Come back a few pages and we'll go back to where, you know, Job's just had his big lament and he curses the day of his birth and then his friends take up the invitation to engage in conversation at that point. So Job chapter 4, verse 1. This is Eliphaz now speaking. If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient But who can keep from speaking? Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees. But now trouble comes to you and you are discouraged. It strikes you and you are dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? Well, what does our comforters come to say? Well, I think it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Like, you read that first uh, verse there by Eliphaz. He's effectively saying that he can no longer hold back his voice. It's almost those, you know, man, after seven days of mourning with you, I can't stay silent anymore. I've got to say what I need to say to you, Job. Now, it's sort of not actually that nice, is it? He's kind of saying, well, are you going to be impatient with me? I feel like I've got something to say to you. I can't stop from speaking. He's saying that, Job, I don't care whether you want to hear me or not, I'm going to speak. And what does he say? Well, he kind of says, well, Job, get back up on your feet. You used to be the one who would strengthen others. You're the one who would strengthen those with feeble knees. You're, and now look at you, you can't support yourself. But here's the twist in what he's saying. He said, well, Job, if you are truly... Blameless, as you say you are, then God will lift you up. God will restore you. Things will not be so bad. Things must get better if you're truly blameless. It's kind of like that awkward equivalent, right? Of someone, you know, telling you someone, you know, there's always more fish in the ocean. Or maybe to someone who's miscarried a baby, that they can always have another one, right? Sort of saying, get over it and get back to it. It's denying their suffering. And then Eliphaz takes it one step further. Verse 7. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plough evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. See, this is where you get the first little insight into the Friends Theology. Right, That God only judges those who plough evil. The innocent don't perish, you reap what you sow. You always get what you deserve. You see, Eliphaz does think that God runs some kind of a karmic system in the way that he punishes evil. He's saying people get what you deserve, so either, Job, you've sinned, or God's going to restore you shortly. Now we know that Job isn't suffering because of sin because God tells us in the, uh, back in the first chapter. It's not that Job's perfect, but actually there's nothing in his life that really made it worth the kind of uh, suffering that he's going through right now. Now let's just think about the effects of those words for a moment. Do you think they're kind? Are they patient? Is this the, the, the words of someone who's wanting to enter into Job's suffering? In fact, actually what we see, what happens in the next few chapters is as Job replies, we find that actually Job now starts to start questioning himself, right? And he's speaking to God here. Job says, relent and do not be unjust. Reconsider for my integrity is at stake. Is there any wickedness on my lips? Can my mouth not discern malice? And then in chapter 7, if I have sinned, what have I done to you? You who see everything we do, why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Now, Job himself, he starts questioning himself thanks to the, uh, the underhanded accusation from his good friend Eliphaz. See, the friends are very confident in what they know, that this is how the universe works. It's a strict rule that suffering is a judgment for Sin. Nothing more, nothing less. Now let's go to chapter 8, which is the passage that uh, Ray read out for us. Now, uh, I don't know if you notice, right at the very start there, uh, he has more or less a bit of a slur against Job straight away. Chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite replied, How long will you say such things? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Does the Almighty pervert what is right? When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Oh man, like Bildad, did you see what he just did? He said, Your children were sinners and they faced the penalty for their sin. You reckon that's what Job needed right now? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, the kids are nodding over there. Now, hopefully you're starting to see what miserable comforters these friends really are. See, in the world of their friends, this is a very locked down world. This is a world without mystery. This is a world in which everything runs with, by this mechanical system of justice and punishment. Now, flip over a few more pages to Zophar, to the third of the friends, okay? Zophar. Then Zophar, the Namathar. That's, sorry, this is verse, uh, chapter 11, chapter 11. Then Zophar the namathite replied, Are these words to go unanswered? Is this talker to be vindicated? Will your idle talk reduce others to silence? Will no one rebuke you when you mock? You say to God, My beliefs are flawless and I am pure in your sight. Oh, how I wish that God would speak, that he would open his lips against you and disclose to you the secrets of wisdom. For true wisdom has two sides. Know this, God has even forgotten some of your sin. See, the third friend, Zophar, comes along and he says, well, you know, Job, you have sinned so greatly that God has even forgotten some of your sin. Cold comfort indeed. Now, later on in the book, uh, some of the friends even start coming along inventing things that Job has done, such is their conviction that this is all a result of sin. See, the implication from Job's friends is very clear, isn't it? Job gets what he deserves. According to the friends, the world works on this very predictable basis of sin and punishment. And that's all there is to it. Now, church, I'd like to say that the heresy that these friends are saying is something extreme and out there and something that you probably won't encounter in your own life. But actually, I've heard the story recently about a couple who left the church because their daughter died of terminal cancer. And what they said is that all the comfort they received from their church is that if they had enough faith, their daughter would get through this. And lo and behold, this uh, cancer turned terminal and the daughter died. You see, the messaging to them was that, uh, that God blesses those who have faith. And that's how things work. That's how the world works. That God had plans to bless them. And if they trusted in him, that God would then bring about the healing of their daughter. Now, of course, that didn't happen, and so they very promptly left. In fact, see, this is a very, it's a very kind of, it's the same version of the same thing, isn't it? A thing that we might know known as the prosperity gospel. It seems attractive at first, right? God's got a plan and a purpose for you. Sounds good so far. But what is God's plan and purpose? God wants you to be able to live your best life, to live the blessed life. So what happens if your life is a disaster? Well, if your life is a disaster, then, well then that's because of your unfaithfulness. The church, it sounds very attractive, but it's partially destructive. It's, 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 the best heresies are always half true. See, the friends here give a very good account of God's justice, don't they? God punishes evil and rewards good. God sees all and knows all. Therefore, the world runs in a strict pattern of punishment and reward. It's a calmer world, according to the friends. And see, even today, people still get those things out of whack. We still kind of emphasize half of the truth at the expense of the other. See, have you heard it said recently? Well, God is a loving and inclusive God. He doesn't judge sin. Or maybe it's the other way around, that actually God is an exclusive God, a God of judgment and wrath, and everything's black and white. And so all the problems are with the world out there. And they emphasise God's exclusivity and not his love. See, in all of this, there's no category of undeserved suffering. In the rule book of the friends, there's no thing called undeserved suffering. There's no uh, broken, fallen world in which things happen to good people. Where undeserved suffering can happen simply as a consequence of living in our broken world. So church, before we move on from the friends, I wanted to stop and reflect on uh, what we learn about them sitting and, and, and what do you say or what rather what not to say to someone suffering. I'll bring up this slide here. Here we go. Now I think there's a whole bunch of things that they do wrong there and they're very clearly done wrong, haven't they? Now first, they're very impatient with the sufferer, don't they? You know, as Job wallows in his self-pity and he curses his birth, he asks questions, he expresses doubt, what do they do? Well, they end up making accusations against him, right? The friends don't have any patience to sit with a sufferer as they go through these processes, even as, as a as a sufferer might go through discomfort in their own uh, uncomfortable questions. There's no room for that for these friends. Now, number two, you notice that they really try to explain all the reasons for his suffering. Now, to their credit, they did sit with him for a week, but as soon as Job spoke, they took that as an invitation for an explanation for why he's in his predicament. Then, furthermore, they then jump very quickly to their theology of sin and judgment, right? It feels godly sometimes to actually speak truth into that situation, but. Not only were they speak, preaching the wrong gospel; they actually, I think, they're also preaching at the wrong time. Someone who's just lost everything—children, goods, everything—seven days is not mourning; is not much time for mourning. But it does get me thinking: where might we jump? Maybe we won't jump to a theology of suffering and and uh, sin, but we might be tempted to want to speak about God's sovereignty instead. No, that's something that people can arrive to much later down the track. And then last one, point four, they promise deliverance. You know, Job, if you're so blameless, God will restore you. Things will be okay. Now, as it turns out, God does eventually come for Job's deliverance. But the way that they, the, jo- the friends speak of this is that God's a cosmic vending machine. He's there to make our lives comfortable. And so for you who are so blameless, Job... God will come to your rescue soon, surely. No, friends, what they did was to kind of hold out hope that they couldn't possibly promise, and they kind of minimise the experience of what Job's going through. So what might we say instead? What might we say instead? Number one, what to do with someone suffering? Just be present. Be present and mourn with those who mourn. See, I think the friends actually did do something well, at least for the first seven days. They just turned up and they were present. They didn't have to say anything. There was something costly about actually going to someone in the midst of their suffering and to be there. Now, we might want to be a because it's awkward, because we, you know, maybe you've just heard you know, four things not to do and you feel like, well, I don't want to go there and say something wrong, but actually just being there and being present, your presence is very powerful. Number two, be quick to listen, but slow to speak. See, when you listen, really listen and try to understand. Acknowledge their feelings. Paraphrase what they've said to you so that you show how much you've been listening and understand. Show your appreciation for them, even just being able to express what's going on for them. And don't offer solutions. Make it about yourself. Don't try and compare this to someone else's pain or minimize their emotions. You know, many a depressed person has been told to snap out of it, go get some more sleep or whatever simplistic solutions. No, no. When we offer cheap solutions, we divert attention away. We minimise or dismiss what they're going through. None of that is helpful. Point four, offer some concrete support. Is there anything I can do? Is actually phenomenally overwhelming for someone in deep suffering. But offering to do something, a meal, to go for a walk... And be okay if they say no. But finally, you might be thinking, well, surely there is a space to say something, isn't there? And there is. There is. This is a phrase I picked up actually from some hospital chaplains who, this is their job day in, day out. They go around to people, patients who are in hospital suffering. You see, they say, truth comes in timing. When someone's in the midst of their struggles... There's nothing that you can say that can make them feel better. In fact, there's nothing you can say that will even probably register. Instead, hold it back. Hold it till maybe there's an invitation to go there, to the person themselves bring out some of those bigger issues. Do the people need to hear the gospel? Yes. Do they need to be assured of God's character? Yes. Do they need to know that there might be a greater purpose in the pain? Well, yes. But that moment might not be Right then, that moment may come down the track. See, I think this is a Job is just such a fascinating entry into this moment, this space, something that we will all experience personally as a sufferer or as someone trying to support and help and, and, and comfort someone going through suffering. I think it's a fascinating uh, indictment against these four friends, isn't it? In the way that they approach it, not just in what they say, but in how they say it. And I think actually uh, to be a good, loving, caring person is to actually take your time to enter into it, to be present and not to try and fix everything. All right, well, back to Job. Back to Job. You see, we said as we've gone through Job, we've heard Job's cry, cry for justice. We've heard the uh, lack of understanding of undeserved suffering, Uh, We've heard the hope and the desire for deliverance. You know what I think is actually most clearly missing from Job and from Job's friends in particular, I think, is the cross. Is the cross. See, Job is crying out for God to vindicate him. The friends are crying out for God's justice to be done. Well, church... In the middle of the Bible, in fact, in the the key moment on all history is a moment where God brings both his judgment and his mercy together. His love and his anger, his grace and his condemnation. An innocent sufferer sits in the middle of all history. You see, what seems to us to be contradictions, God actually shows in the mysteries of all eternity that actually they were working together to bring about salvation for sinners like you and me. See, Peter uh, actually writes this about Jesus and his undeserved suffering and how we are to emulate that. He said this, For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. Verse 21, To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit, was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you are like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See, so at the heart of the universe is an innocent sufferer, God's one and only Son, who is nailed to a cross where God's mercy and His justice come together. And so instead of needing to have this rigid view of God's justice and punishment, we actually see that actually at the cross is a, is a center of a man who bears our punishment so that we can be healed. That as his wounds, it's actually from his wounds that he heals us and that he actually deals with all of any possible sin that we might have, that we might have, um, committed. You see, church, you know what? Christianity is utterly unique. And this is why. Because it's the only religion, the only religion in which God comes and enters into our suffering world. He enters into it by suffering it himself. He doesn't stand aside to the world suffering as an observer or as a judge. He enters into it, and by entering into it, he brings about the healing of our wounds and forgives our sins. God walking alongside alongside us, healing our pain and our suffering and our sin. See, church, the karma world is one in which everyone gets what they deserve, you know, it sounds great and it's simple and it's clear, but it's ultimately cruel. It is ultimately cruel. Because in a world that's beset with suffering, sometimes that suffering comes for no reason at all. Sometimes it does come from sin. But either way, in a calmer world, there's no redemption from suffering. You see, instead of trying to fix or explain suffering, what do we do? We follow Christ in his suffering. The innocent sufferer who brings life and healing to our world. And those who walk with Christ through suffering, can I suggest that you may in fact be the best person to love people where they're at. Sitting with their suffering with kindness and humility. See, church, Christ gives us a great example of what that looks like. And as we follow him, might we be the kind of comforters that people like Job needs. Let me pray for us in that. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you as broken people who live in a broken world from which many of us are suffering. Father, we see and we appreciate that you are not a God who stands aloft, separate from our suffering world, but, Lord, as one who has entered into it. Father, we praise you that in the mysteries of our universe, we see this mystery unveiled, that you sent your one and only Son into the world to die as an innocent, undeserved sufferer. Yet as he does does so, Lord, he heals our wounds, he enters into our suffering, and he forgives our sin. Father, we praise you for the Lord that we have. We praise you for this man of sorrows. We praise you, Lord, that we can find our peace and comfort in him. But, Father, as we do uh, go through suffering, as we comfort those who are suffering, might we continue to follow in Jesus' footsteps, entering into that suffering bringing healing instead of judgment because of what Jesus has done for us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, church, why don't you take a moment to reflect on...